You know, when I uh, worked in the business world, there was a term that was used to describe a prospective employee, someone who made the cut and was being considered being hired. They would always say they have the right credentials, meaning they possess the experience and the, and the ability that was required to do the job and do it well. They were proven credible in that line of work. And all of these credentials that we talk about are established or earned through experience and education and special certification and even meeting certain security criteria. We live in a culture today where credentials are of the greatest importance because credentials allow you access. Credentials offer you opportunity and it also gives you instant credibility. In our society, people with the right credentials can get into certain places while people without appropriate credentials cannot. I mean, just try entering the People's Republic of China without the appropriate travel credentials. Or try attending a top secret strategy meeting at the Department of Defense without the appropriate military credentials. Or even try following the Golden State Warriors in or out of their tunnel before or after a game without the proper media credentials and you'll see what'll happen. You'll be denied. And I think we all understand how important credentials are and how they work. Although we don't necessarily like the hassle of, of showing our boarding pass or our driver's license or our passports to people. We don't necessarily enjoy the educational requirements or the exams or the waivers required to obtain uh, certain uh, credentials. We all understand the fact that credentials are important and they do serve a purpose in our world. Well, this morning, as we continue in our series called Live Strong from the, it's our study in the book of Philippians, Paul is going to talk about credentials, specifically the kind of credentials that are required for a person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I'd have to say that that's a rather urgent topic, wouldn't you? Because uh, being kept out of China or being kept out of the Pentagon or Chase Center, well, that's one thing. But being refused at the gates of heaven for all eternity, well, to me, that qualifies as the worst possible tragedy that a human being could ever experience. And in our scripture reference this morning that we're going to read, the Apostle Paul is clearly talking about eternal life or death. In fact, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. You don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me when we get to that, but in preparation, go ahead and turn there, Philippians 3. And what we're going to see here. Paul is helping us to understand the importance of the right kind of credentials as he describes an era in his own personal life. There was a time when he unintentionally held bogus spiritual credentials. And as he looks back on that time in his own life, it becomes a chilling exercise for him because he knows full well as he looks back at, the, at, at that moment, had he died and faced judgment before God, he would have confidently pulled out his spiritual credentials and flashed them to the guard at heaven's gate only to have been turned away. And now in hindsight, the apostle Paul sees how ill-credentialed he truly was. So Paul is using himself as an example of someone who thought he had a valid ticket to heaven who did not. 
So let's read together Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the New King James Version this morning. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil, do- evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, as I read that scripture, the most striking part in that entire passage to me is found in verse eight, because I am struck by one word that Paul uses here to describe his own life. Listen to again what it says. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish that I might gain Christ. The word rubbish that Paul uses here comes from the Greek word skubala, which literally means dung. It means excrement. As Paul looks back on his illustrious background, it's all dung, he says, compared to the privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, why would a man use such a word to describe his own past life? Is he being a little bit harsh here? Is this some kind of an exaggeration to get our attention? Or does he really mean it? Well, I think by the end of today's message, you will see how serious the apostle is. There is a renowned motivational speaker who once asked this question. Do you know why God put you where you are right now? It's a tough question for a lot of people to answer. But have you ever wondered about that? Why has God put you right here right now at this moment in time? Do you think it just happened by chance that you are here today? Do you think it's just by chance that you are single or married or that you have children at home or that you have children who have long since moved out in a way that you have a good job or that you're stuck in a bad position or situation? Or is there a larger purpose at work in your life? Let me ask that question from a completely different perspective. What will you have to show for your life when you stand before God? Will it be a good job? 
a college degree, money in the bank, a whole lot of friends, a good reputation, a, a, a successful career, the praise of other people, a winning record, a wall of awards, a departmental chairman, president, or CEO of the company. Honestly, folks, if that's all you've got to show for your life, you really don't have much going for you. Now, I know from a worldly perspective that people would say, you're an idiot, pastor, whoever you are, but you really have nothing. Because sooner than we all think, your body is gonna be lying in a box six feet underground with grass growing over your head. That may sound a bit blunt to you, but I think you know me well enough by now to know that I'm always gonna be blunt with you, nor am I going to sugarcoat the truth found in God's word. Because there will come a time when life as you and I know it will cease. And guess what? Someone else will have your money. And someone else will have your job, and they'll probably pay them more than they were paying you. <laughs> Hurts, doesn't it? Your fame will fade. Your glory will disappear. And since you can't take it with you, everything that you own, everything that you've collected, everything that you've saved is going to go to somebody else. And this is a staggering one here for most of you. Someone's even going to be sitting in your spot in your pew. <laughs> Imagine that, that one you paid for for the last 50 years and you won't move for anybody. And if a, and if a stranger comes, you go, could you get out of there? Because that's where I sit. Sadly, all of us are eventually going to be forgotten. As hard as that is to take, we're going to be forgotten, except by your family, except by your close friends, and perhaps those who might stumble across your gravestone and they say, who in the world was that guy, I wonder? You know, if you'll recall, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's only two things in this world that are eternal. And those two things are the word of God and people. So it only makes sense that we build our life around those things that will last forever. The word of God, which lasts forever, and people, because we are indwelt with the spirit of God. We are also indwelt with just our own spirit, whether God is a part of that or not. For those who are lost, everything else disappears besides human beings and the word of God. So let me ask you another thought-provoking question. Where will you be when you get to where you're going? Some of us really need to think about that one for a while. Evidently, the Apostle Paul, he wrestled deeply with that question, and he had, had evaluated the entire direction of his life before and after he met Jesus. And once he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, his life was radically and utterly transformed. His life was turned upside down. His values literally changed overnight. Everything that he thought was important became like dung to him when he compared it to the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you from this passage today how Paul came to that startling conclusion. So as we start to break down these verses this morning, I want you to take some time to ponder that question in the back of your brain. Where will you be when you get to where you're going? You see, this passage begins with a stern word of warning. Evidently, some false teachers had infiltrated their way into the church in Philippi, of which Paul is writing to, 
And he wanted to be sure that the congregation knew how to handle them. In verse two, he uses three very harsh terms to describe these false teachers. When he says this, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. He calls them dogs, not house pets. He's talking about wild dogs who wander out there on the streets and evil workers and mutilators of the flesh. These men were immoral. They had influence and yet they created problems. They were zealous and yet they were wrong. They were active within the church, but evil was their influence. Evidently, they were professing Jewish Christians who were teaching that you had to keep the law of Moses in order to receive salvation. They claimed that in, that in Old Testament covenant that God had made with the male Jews of circumcision was necessary in order to be accepted by God. And to the apostle Paul, this was nothing more than heresy. You see, it's one thing for a man to decide that he wants to keep the law of Moses for himself, but it's another thing to demand that everyone else does as he does. And we see this kind of thing all the time. Someone with influence and, and even the right credentials can get way off base, theologically speaking. And they start down some road going the wrong way. And through their influence, they begin to manipulate others to go along with them on this same journey. And what's even worse is when they think, say things like, if you don't do what I do, you can't really be saved. So for anyone to say, you must keep the law in order to be saved is to deny the gospel of grace. So these men were mutilating the souls of people that they claimed to be helping. And I want you to notice Paul's answer in the first part of verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision. What Paul means is that true believers have been circumcised in their hearts through faith in Christ Jesus. We don't need a physical operation because we have a, a spiritual heart transplant. And as a result, look at verse three in its entirety. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Let me be as clear about this as I know how to be. Religion without Christ is dangerous. Millions of people in this world today, even in the United States of America, are trusting in their religion to get them to heaven. They trust in the activities and the rituals of the church. They believe that because they were baptized as an infant or as a child or as a teenager or as an adult, that that's their ticket to heaven. They believe that if they take certain classes and receive certain certificates of membership that they're saved, Many people walk around trusting in their, their family's religious heritage. They think that because they, they were raised Baptist or, or Methodist or Lutheran or Assemblies of God or Catholic, that they must be born again. But it's not so. Because religion without Christ will not bring about eternal life in God's presence. You can pray your prayers five times a day. 
You can be baptized. You can watch TBN all day long. You can take communion regularly. You can light an Advent candle at Christmas in your home. You can even drop a million bucks in the offering plate. If you'd ever like to do that here, you're welcome to do that. (laughs) But if you don't know Jesus, it won't do you a bit of good. It doesn't matter. It's all dung. It's all. You see, many religious people have a Christ plus kind of faith. They are trusting in Christ plus baptism, Christ plus church membership, Christ plus church tradition, Christ plus doing good works or giving money. It's like they have completely denied the truth in that that old gospel song that says, Jesus paid it all. Why do they do that? Because they, they have this need to add their part to what Jesus did. And I'm going to speak some truth to you right now that you need to heed. Don't trust your religion to save you, ladies and gentlemen. It can't save you. Don't trust your parents to save you because they can't save you. Don't trust your water baptism to save you. It can't save you. Don't trust in your church attendance to save you. It can't save you. Don't trust in a priest to absolve you of your sin. He can absolve you of your sin, and he cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you and offer you eternal life. Therefore, only trust in Jesus, for he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and he is the only one who can save you. Listen, religion is good. So is baptism. So is church membership, as are many of the outward activities of Christianity. But if your heart has not been circumcised by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not saved and you are not going to heaven, period. It's as simple as that. And that's the warning that Paul is telling us about in today's scripture. Paul goes on to give a personal illustration from his own life. And here's where he begins to speak about his own credentials, his spiritual pedigree, if you will. He lists seven different points regarding his background, verses five and six. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, a persecutor of the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. So Paul lists the the right ritual. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He's from the right race. He's an Israelite. He's from the right family, the tribe of Benjamin. He has the right religion. He is the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He has the right occupation. After all, he's a Pharisee. He has the right zeal as a persecutor of the early New Testament church before he met Jesus. And he has the right morality, excuse me, outwardly keeping all of God's commandments. Now, if you aren't impressed with that list that I just read you, it's because you weren't a Jew living in the first century. Because let me tell you something, in his culture, Paul had it going on. The term that we use to describe people today in very high positions in our society, we call them blue bloods. The apostle Paul, or before that, Saul was, was a blue blood, and he was as in as you could be 
in the first century. He had it all, Jewish descent, an excellent Jewish education, a high social standing, a reputation for keeping the law, a reputation for moral purity. What more could you want? But stop right there because that's the whole point of this passage. What more could you want? If being religious could get you into heaven, ladies and gentlemen, then Paul should have had guaranteed front row seats right next to Moses and Elijah. His spiritual resume was as good as it gets. You talk about your first round draft picks, Paul was a first rounder all the way. The point is most people in the world, they would stop right there and they would go no further. They would take a look at their spiritual resume and they'd say, it's not too bad. Maybe it's, we look at our own that way. We say, maybe it's not as good as the Apostle Paul's, but surely it's good enough to, to squeak me into heaven. They go to church occasionally. They try to be good. They haven't killed anyone lately. They, they try to help other people in need. They, they figure out that somehow it's all gonna work out in the end. And sadly, they, they believe, that, sadly, they, they uh, subscribe to the oldest religion in the world called the do the best you can religion. They figure as long as they, they, they do their best, that when they die, God's gonna smile, and he's gonna wink and he's gonna say, oh, come on in, it's okay, you can slide by. Most people sincerely believe that doing your best is enough. What more could you want? Well, that brings us to the third section of this passage. It's where Paul considers his life before coming to Christ. And he does a kind of mental accounting, a drawing up of a, of a spiritual profit and loss statement. On the prophet side, he puts two words, Jesus Christ. On the law side, he lists all of those things that he used to brag about. Think about that for a moment. Paul is casting aside his, his national heritage his ethnic background, his religious training, his family heritage, his many years of education. He's saying that as, a, as his training as a, as a Pharisee and his reputation for religious zeal and his standing of a man of high moral character, all of those credentials are no longer what he once believed them to be. He's saying it doesn't matter at all anymore. It's all dung to me. Because the only thing that matters in life is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point, I have only one question, but it's a big question. Why would Paul come to such a radical conclusion? You know, when we read about rubbish, we ordinarily assume he's talking about things that God calls sinful. For most of us, rubbish in our life involves angry thoughts, and bad habits, and lying, and dabbling in pornography, and gross misconduct, and idolatry, and sexual immorality, and, and racial prejudice, and, and an uncontrolled temper, unforgiveness, and all that other bad stuff that we know is sinful, that we know is wrong. So if I said to you, get the rubbish out of your life, I don't think many of you would instinctively start thinking about your ethnic heritage or, or your education or your years as a Sunday school teacher. But that's precisely what Paul is writing about in Philippians chapter three. For Paul, anything that keeps you from Christ is rubbish. It is dung 
No matter how good it may look to you on the outside or no matter how good it may look to other people. It's not that the things on Paul's list were wrong in and of themselves. In fact, most of them were, were morally neutral. There was nothing wrong with him being circumcised. I mean, God had commanded it with the Jewish men in the Old Testament. It is a part of a covenant that he had made with them. There's nothing wrong with being from the tribe of Benjamin. There was nothing wrong with zealously keeping God's law. The heritage issues he couldn't do anything about even if he wanted to. And with regard to his lifestyle choices, they weren't in themselves sinful, of course, with the exception of persecuting the early New Testament church. But they were rubbish to him. They were dung to him. Why? Because he took an inordinate amount of pride in them. He was proud of those things. He looked down on other people because of them. He evaluated everything in light of his credentials. And in the end, those human things were just dung that had to be thrown overboard the ship of his life so that he could finally come to Jesus. You know, a person may say, I'm a fourth generation Pentecostal, praise Jesus. My father and, and my grandfather and my great grandfather were all ministers of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. My grandfather pastored the largest church in our denomination, and my father was the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, to which I would reply, that's awesome, I, that's really neat. You should be proud of your fine Assembly of God heritage, but don't make the mistake of thinking that your heritage gets you any special favors from God. You must be saved by grace just like everybody else. That true truth applies to every one of us. Here's my point. If you think your nationality or your pedigree or your upbringing somehow puts you in a better position with God, my friends, you are sadly mistaken. And if you use any of that to look down on other people because you feel superior to them in some way, let me put it this way. You haven't yet understood your own sin or how desperately you stand in need of God's grace yourself. So Paul did a new accounting in his life. And the conclusion he came away with was that his advantages that were so important to him did not matter a hill of beans in God's eyes. In fact, in some ways, they actually kept him from discovering God's grace. That is, until he learned to count them as dung compared to the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if we understand just how radical this new perspective of his really is. So this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna take a minute and I wanna look at exactly what it is that we possess in Christ Jesus. And we're gonna do that by taking a look at Paul's new credentials that he obtained through Christ Jesus. And please understand something, these are the same credentials that we receive whenever we turn our life over completely to Jesus. And here's credential number one, the gift of Christ's righteousness. You see, it's his righteousness that makes up for that which we don't have. I want you to stick with me here for just a moment. When a person who is still in sin realizes that their lack of appropriate spiritual credentials, we stand there embarrassed and credentialless, if you will. 
But when we repent before God and we cry out for Jesus to save us, a twofold transaction has to take place. First, a sin transfer must take place. Sin must be dealt with. So, so here what, here's what God does. He transfers the sin from the sinner onto the shoulders of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus pays for the sins of the sinner with his shed blood on the cross. It is his shed blood that atones or covers or wipes away, washes clean our sin. Here's a good example of this from the sport of hockey. If a goalie ever gets a penalty, do you know that another teammate has to serve that penalty? You can't take the goalie out of the net. So someone else literally pays for the sin of the goalie. Likewise, when you and I sin, we bring our sin to the Lord. He takes that sin and he transfers it onto Jesus Christ who pays for the penalty of our sin through his blood on the cross. Secondly, a righteousness transfer must take place. Once our sin has been transferred onto the cross, we're just kind of at a break even or, or a neutral zone. In other words, we have no more sin, but we don't have any righteousness. So the second step of the saving work of Christ is the transferring of righteousness. Jesus led a perfect life and his, his righteousness gets transferred into our accounts. And at that moment, at that exact moment, God sees us as sin-free and full of righteousness. Not the righteousness that we earn by obeying the law, because we'd never be able to put that much into the bank account. We're not that righteous, trust me. It's a righteousness that comes as a gift from Jesus. It's simply what it is. To be in Christ means that God imputes or he reckons the righteousness of Christ into your account. You get credit for Jesus' perfect righteousness and now you are what the scriptures call the righteousness of Christ. Well, I don't feel very righteous sometimes. Trust me, you are. You are the righteousness of Christ. That's what the scriptures tell us. Paul says, that's what I've received. That's my new credential. It's the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Well, here's the second credential we receive through salvation. The gift of knowing Christ personally. Verse 10 says, the beginning of that says, that I, that I may know him. Paul is saying, there was a time when my religion consisted of, of rule keeping. It was about being zealous and all about performance. But now there is a relational dimension where I can personally know my God and nothing beats knowing God in a relational way. We as Christ followers get to become intimate. We get to have a, a personal, a real relationship with the creator of everything. We can communicate with him now through prayer and he can communicate to us through his Holy Spirit. No longer do we have to live by following a bunch of rules and religious activities and traditions. That's what is called the law, folks. We now live in the age of grace, which is life-giving and empowering because we are in a personal relationship with Jesus. And that leads me to our next item, credential number three, the gift of experiencing his power. 
Verse 10 continues to say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. When you are relating to Christ, there's an infusion of divine strength. It's like increased spiritual voltage inside of you. And it's useful, yes, for service. It's useful to be able to love people who are difficult to love. It's useful when you are enduring trials or facing grief or when you're overcoming temptation of some kind. The power of his resurrection becomes a part of us. And we can then accomplish things for God's kingdom that once seemed impossible for you and I. There's also an increased divine strength that allows you to endure the storms of life in much greater ways. Paul is saying nothing beats that infusion of divine energy into my life. So Paul or our new credentials are number one, Christ's righteousness. Number two, knowing Christ personally. Number three, receiving God's power in our life. But then he says something that that might make you gulp. Credential number four, the gift of fellowshipping with his sufferings. Look Look at the second part of verse 10. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Okay, Pastor David, I'm not sure I like that one so much. Those other ones were pretty exciting to me, but I don't know if I like that. Well, hang on for a moment, because this is Christianity 101 that I'm going to dip in here for you. And forgive me for all of you who are scholars in this, and you're bored with me this morning. This is important stuff, and we need to be reminded of it. I don't care how scholarly you are. You need to hear this sometimes, so bear with me. Paul is saying that a mature believer who knows and loves Christ can come to the place where they gladly embrace difficulty and hardship for the cause of Christ. Why? Because that difficulty, that that pain, allows a person to enter into and to identify with the suffering that Jesus endured when he died on the cross for our sake. And there's a special kind of bonding that occurs in that shared kind of suffering with Jesus. Now, some of us are just taking baby steps into what that's like, while others in this place, man, you face tragedy. You've had some crazy things happen to you in your life. But within all of that, there's a kind of identification that you now have clearly with Christ, and it is rich, and it is a fulfilling experience for you. It's the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Paul says nothing beats that. And furthermore, he says, do not be afraid of it. Then he offers credential number five, the gift of resurrection from the dead. Verse 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, and being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because my Christ, because of my Christ-purchased credentials that I'm going to spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ. He's no longer worried about where he's going to go when he dies. Because he's trashed his former credentials, his heritage, his zeal, his morality. He says, that's all garbage to me. He says, I'm trusting only in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is a Christ plus nothing plan. Paul exchanged his Christless credentials for Christ himself. And as a result, he gains the absolute assurance 
of eternal life. So when I said before you know it, you're gonna be in a box six feet under the ground. No, that's only gonna be your body because once you know Christ, your spirit will transform. It will be in the presence of God. To be absent from the Lord is to be in the presence of God. So I wanna make that clarification from what I said earlier. And Paul says now all of us who are in Christ Jesus can say nothing at all beats this. I received the righteousness of Christ as a gift. I can know him personally. I can receive his power now in my life. And when I suffer, I can identify with him. And I suffer for his sake. I have the guarantee of knowing him throughout eternity. Nothing beats knowing Christ. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I think what he's trying to convey to us is that Jesus is plan A, and there is no plan B. I think he's saying, I'm trusting in Jesus so fully that I don't have any kind of a fallback position. If Jesus doesn't come through, my body is going to rot in the grave. That's what salvation and faith is all about, ladies and gentlemen. It means trusting Jesus so completely that if he can't take you to heaven, you're not gonna go there. Here's the point. Put all that we have in Christ on one side of the ledger. Put your spiritual resume on the other side. What we have in Christ is so great that nothing in this world is able to compare to it. Take a piece of paper and open up your Bible. Let that open Bible represent Christ and that piece of paper represent your life. Now take that paper and put it inside of that Bible and close it so that that paper is completely covered. Now the paper, your life, is in the book. You are in Christ Jesus. It's not enough to be near Christ, you must be in Christ. True salvation is to be in Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. What he sees is Jesus instead. You get credit for the perfect righteousness of the Son of the living God. This is good stuff here, folks. Brings me back to the question that I asked you earlier. Where will you be when you get to where you're going? When you finally come to the end of your life, What will you have to show for your 40, 50, 70, 90, 100 years that you were trotting on this earth? For many people, the answer is the same. They ended up in heaven because that's what they were living for here on this earth. They were living for the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem that so many people have is that they are still playing in the trash heap of life. Their hands are covered with the dung of the earthly gain that we think is so stinking important. And it all counts for nothing when compared to knowing Christ Jesus. Over 2,000 years ago, the Lord asked the question this way in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? You see, we're all on a journey from from time to eternity. Sooner than we think, our earthly body, as the Bible calls it, this this earthen vessel, will be in a casket. 
And people will be standing over us and some will be weeping and maybe some will be happy, I don't know. But what will they say about you then? What will they write? What will they etch in that tombstone? He spent his life on things that didn't matter? Or will it say he met Jesus and his life was never the same? Do you know Jesus this morning? Are you still trusting in your religion to get you into heaven? I urge you to do a new accounting of your life and figure out what matters. Figure out those things that don't matter. If you don't know Jesus, you are in danger of losing your eternal soul in this world and in the next. Nothing matters but knowing Christ and being found in him. Are you willing to trade in your own spiritual resume for the righteousness of Jesus? Would you like to go to heaven? Well, here are five simple words that can take you there. Only Jesus and Jesus only. It's as simple as it gets, folks. May God help us to leave the rubbish of our good deeds and run to the cross where we can find Christ Jesus. Scott, will you come forward? I'd like to ask everyone to stand to your feet. Ladies and gentlemen of High Point, I believe with all my heart that we are living in the last days. And I know I heard that growing up a lot when I was a kid and, and I used to think, boy, I've heard this a billion times and I'm still here, you know? And I don't know if it comes with age. I would like to think with age, I've gained some wisdom as well. But it's really just understanding uh, the ways of the world and understanding biblical prophecy to understand that um, the end could happen at any moment. We are on the threshold of, of eternity in my opinion. So many biblical prophecies have have already been fulfilled. Just a matter of time when God's gonna say, it's time. And we can roll our eyes and you know, you can mock me and whatever people who don't know Jesus do to people who know Jesus. But I'm willing to bet my life on it and, and have bet my life on it. And I don't know about you, but, but I don't wanna just be ready for when Jesus comes, but I wanna be in the game I wanna be a part of bringing others into God's kingdom through salvation in Christ Jesus. My theme in preaching most the entire, almost 10 years now that I've been here is all about salvation because I feel like that's my job. But while we're learning about salvation, you learn about a whole lot of other things as well. But I'm never gonna stop preaching about salvation because that's what I'm paid to do. <laughs> and even if I didn't get paid to do it, that's what I do because I understand that life is short. And the reason we are here is to serve the creator of it all, the one who made us. And we need to be ready for when he decides to come and take us home. My calling is to try to bring as many people along with me as possible. There are people here today you don't know Christ. Oh, you know who he is. You, you, you understand the concept of him. You, you maybe even read some of your Bible, but you don't have a personal 
and an intimate relationship with him. You've never thought of it as a serious enough issue and maybe you've even laughed at the thought of, of turning your life over to Jesus. Well, Jesus is here today. His presence, his spirit is in this place. Well, first of all, he's in all of us who believe in him because once, as we said, we have that transfer and, and God's righteousness becomes up, but his Holy Spirit also indwells us. The minute you receive Christ, God's spirit now indwells you. So, so God's spirit is here in us, but if you're not a Christian, God's spirit is in this place. And the Holy Spirit of God is, wants to see you saved and he may be making you feel a little uncomfortable right now. Maybe you're feeling a little bit of conviction. That's okay. Don't run from that. This is a moment in time where you have an opportunity to do and make the best decision you could ever make in your entire life and turn your life over to Jesus and allow him to have lordship over your life. God can radically change your life your direction. He can change your outlook. And just like with the Apostle Paul, your life will never, ever be the same again. All you need to do is believe in and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and confess your sin with your mouth. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Seek his forgiveness. He will forgive you. And at that moment, you will be saved. There are others here today, and what I've said about trusting in your religion hit you hard today because you've come to realize that you've been living the Jesus Plus plan. You've been trying to earn your way into heaven through good works and good deeds, but you've never allowed Jesus to do a transforming work in your life. You have no passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's because you view it as work. You view it as something that you continually have to earn. That's not the program. You simply need forgiveness. You simply need salvation and to finally be set free from that bondage that you may have been walking in for 30, 40, 50 years of your life. Today, will you quit trying to earn your salvation and allow Jesus to save you his way and receive his righteousness? There are others here today and you need a fresh empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. You feel defeated, you feel weak, and God wants to reconnect with you and bring you a fresh infilling of his spirit. I wanna open this altar to here today. If you are new with us, we do this every week. In fact, the altars are open all the time. You may have noticed during worship, people came down and prayed. That's okay, that's the kind of church we are. If God is moving you to, to come to him, you can come to this altar anytime, but most of the time at the end of a service, we open this altar up so that you can come and lay your burden down. We try to give people an opportunity to respond to the, to the, to the word of God or the leading of the Holy Spirit who might be prodding you right now to come forward and receive him. Because each one of us is spoken to in so many different ways. And God is challenging people here this morning in a whole lot of different ways. As I always say, it would be a shame for you to leave here on a Sunday and miss your opportunity to not take care of that unfinished business. It would be a terrible thing for anyone to leave here today taking your, and not taking your cares to the only one who makes a difference. If you're sick here today and you need a physical touch from God, come down to this altar. You'll find Jesus here. If you're dealing with a relational issue or a financial issue, a physical issue, an emotional issue, 
Christ is here today. You can seek him and you can find him in prayer. While the worship team sings, you come to this altar and you can seek him for whatever it is that you need. Anthony and I will come and we'll lay hands on you and pray for you. And if you are unable to come to this altar, if you don't have a need to come here today, will you, and you don't even have to stand, you can sit while you're doing that. Pray for those who are here. Pray for them like they were your own child, your own parents, your own brother, your own sister. As the worship team sings, let's spend some time connecting with the Lord. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. Like a search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. And there is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do Like a search for all eternity long And find there is none like you Oh, your mercy flows like a river Suffering children are safe in your arms, oh Lord, there is none like you. Suffering children are 
touch my heart like you do like a search for all eternity long and fine there is none like you your mercy lord oh your mercy flows like a river wide healing comes from your hand oh the suffering children god they're safe in you continue to pray. I'd like you to bow your heads with me as we close this service. Precious Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful. Thank you for Jesus. It's Jesus or it's nothing, Lord. Thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf. Thank you that we have salvation and that we have the promise of eternity in your presence when our time here is done. What a precious gift. Father, help us to understand what a precious gift that is. Well, I pray for everyone in this place today, those who know you, those maybe who just accepted you today for this very first moment. Those who maybe needed a tune-up this morning, I, I pray, God, that you would continue to work in and through them, that your spirit would continue to convict and to draw, to show us the things in our life that maybe we pay too much attention to, that we give too much effort and acknowledgement to when really all we need to do is acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. Let that be our heart's cry, I pray, Father. I also ask that for my church family, Lord, that we would become concerned with those around us who do not know you, that we would truly become ministers of the gospel of peace and reconciliation, that we would look for ways to share your goodness with others and to bring them in, that we would not just be a part of going to heaven with you, but we would be a part of bringing others along with us because we introduce them to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so, God, as we go our separate ways today, pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Let those conversations be designed to build people up and not tear them down. Let our light shine so brightly that people would see a difference and even come and say, what is it with us that makes us different? And you open that door and we walk through it and share your goodness with them. Father, I also pray that you keep us safe from accident, from injury, from sickness and illness until we gather together again and we come together to worship you in spirit and in truth. 
And I pray as we leave here today that we would leave here in love and we would shed that love to those, even those who are hard to love, to show that we are followers of Christ. So use us this week, Lord, and let us go in love. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.